Hello all you beautiful body bastards and welcome back to Body Ballads where we look at many of the forgotten, hilarious, and often dirty old songs of the past. Along the way we'll explore all those things that make life a little bit more interesting. There's trickery, infidelity, loving, drinking, fighting, all kinds of stuff. And while we dig deep into these songs we'll talk about all kinds of things archetypes, history, folklore, and share the way these songs connect with the present. A uh, fair warning before we begin, this show does discuss adult themes and topics including violence, sex, and my own foul mouth. And as always, make sure to check the show notes for links including thebodyballads.com where you can share your creations with me and see the show transcripts and additional links if you're curious to learn more, which you should be. With that said, let's get to today's episode, Barbara Allen and the Suffolk Miracle. Now, I'll be honest, y'all. I was a little torn on what to focus on this week. I found some really amazing stuff, ones that reminded me of why I began digging deeper into the ballads in the first place. And I'm also contemplating what other elements I can add to the show to mix things up a bit. I feel like I could expand on and link these songs to a whole bunch more. I'm thinking about including more myth and folklore because they are the core of these early ballads and therefore much of the modern songwriting tradition as well. My research into all of this actually began as digging into every back copy of the journal Folklore by the American Folklore Society because a lot of the work bringing these songs back alive was done by early folklorists who were working to save traditional oral culture, story, and music. The two are intricately linked, and I'm not sure why I haven't talked about that yet. I guess it's because we haven't done a really supernatural song yet. We've mostly been talking about sex, not that that's a bad thing. I rather hope it's given some good food for thought. That said, this show will be in a constant state of growth and evolution, with me adding and removing according to what seems to be working. I do hope that folks will eventually send me their work so I can have more to share and get the opportunity to interview the creators, artists, etc. But, you know, gotta build first. So, if you're listening today and you know someone who is a musician, songwriter, storyteller, please spread the word. In the end, I've decided to jump into the supernatural realm and look at a couple different ones. Well, actually three. The first isn't very popular. The other remains one of the most popular songs in the folk blue and bluegrass tradition. And the third is a very modern, well, I wouldn't say modern. I guess it's about 12 years old now or something like that. Anyway, a newer song along the same themes and kind of ideas to give you some, some contrast to look at. The first, uh, The Suffolk Miracle, isn't that well known or performed today, but it has so many of the key traits of the kind of story where a dead lover returns to visit the living. But the living lover doesn't know that they're talking to a dead virgin. It's hard to explain that, but it's a popular one, and I think you'll get the point when we look at the story. So let's do that. The Suffolk Miracle, being the relation of a young man who, after his death, appeared to his sweetheart and carried her behind him 40 miles in two hours' time and was never seen after but in the grave. This one's a little bit newer than in any of the others we've covered so far. This little baby was published somewhere between 1730 and 1769. 
A wonder strange was e'er was known than what I now shall treat upon. In Suffolk there did lately dwell a farmer rich and known full well. He had a daughter, fair and bright, on whom he placed his chief delight. Her beauty was beyond compare. She was both virtuous and fair. A young man there was living by who was so charmed with her eye that he could never be at rest. He was with love so much possessed. He made a dress to her, and she did grant him love immediately, which when her father came to hear, he parted her and her poor dear. Forty miles distant she was sent unto her uncles with intent that she should ne'er so long remain till she had changed her mind again. Hereafter, this young man sadly grieved, but knew not how to be relieved. He sighed and sobbed continually that his true love he'd never see. She by no means could to him send who was her heart's espoused friend. He sighed, she grieved, but all in vain, for she confined must still remain. He mourned so much that doctor's art could not ease unto his heart, who was so strangely terrified that in short time for love he died. She that was from him sent away knew nothing of his dying day, but constant still she did remain to love the dead was then in vain. After he had in the grave been laid a month or more unto this maid he came about middle of the night, who joyed to see her heart's delight. Her father's horse, which well she knew, her mother's hood and safeguard too, he brought with him to testify. Her parents' order he came by, which when her uncle understood, he hoped it might be for her good, and gave consent to her straightway that with him she shouldn't come away. When she was got behind her love, her love behind, they passed as swift as any wind, that in two hours or little more he brought her to her father's door. But as they did this great haste make, he did complain his head did ache. Her handkerchief she took out, and tied the same his head about, and unto him she thus did say, Thou art cold as any clay. When we come home, a fire we'll have. But little dreamt he went to the to grave. Soon were they at her father's door. And after she ne'er seen him no more. I'll set the horse up then, he said. And there he left his harmless maid. She knocked and straight away he cried, Who's there? Tis I, she then replied. Who wondered much her voice to hear and was possessed with dread and fear. Her father she did tell, and then he stared like an affrighted man. Downstairs he ran, and when he saw her, cried out, My child, how camest thou here? Pray, sir, did you not send for me? By such a messenger, said she, which made his hair stand on his head, as knowing well that he was dead. Where is he then? To her he said. He's in the stable, quoth the maid. Go in, said he, and go to bed. I'll see the horse well littered. He stared about, and there could see no shape of any mankind see, but found his horse and all in a sweat, which put him in a deadly fright. 
His daughter he said nothing to, nor no one else, though well they knew, that he was dead a month before, for fear of grieving her full sore. His father to his father went, who was decayed with this intent, to tell him what his daughter said, so both came back unto his maid. They asked her, and she still did say, "'Twas him that then brought her away." which when they heard they were amazed and on each other strangely gazed a handkerchief she said she tied about his head and that they tried the sexton they did speak unto that he the grave would then undo affrighted then they did behold his body turning into mold and though he had a month been dead this handkerchief was about his head the thing unto her then did they told, and the whole truth they did unfold. She was thereafter so terrified and grieved, she quickly died. Part not, true love, you rich men then, but if they be right honest men, your daughter's love give them their way, for force oft breeds their life's decay. So, on the top level, this story seems simple enough. Father sends his daughter off to get her away from the boyfriend who dies from a broken heart. His ghost, or zombie body, comes to take her home only to disappear in time for the truth to come out. The girl, in misery and grief, also dies from heartache, uniting the lovers again. Yet, between the lines, there is a pretty sinister motive. The boy's revenant comes back to take the girl back home so that she discovers the truth of his fate. But does he realize that she will die of her own sorrow? Is this a way of getting justice and revenge against the father who kept these true lovers apart? Then again, if the father hadn't insisted they dig up the boy's damn body, or was it him? It had to have been him. The song isn't clear, but the character of the father would match with the kind to have a boy dug up to prove he was right. We don't know much about the boy or why the father would be so insistent that he wasn't good enough to marry his daughter that he sent her far away from home for good. Did they get caught together? Was he too poor? Well, that's the only logical explanation I can think of. He was too poor and her father wanted more for her daughter, his daughter. And this is where the folklore comes in. Because the boy is clearly not a ghost, but a revenant. Now, for me, a revenant is slightly different than a zombie, but the word revenant can apply to both ghosts and animated corpses. But in the second case, the consensus seems to be that the person was unbelievably wicked in their life in order um, to have the power to reanimate their corpse to go about their unfinished business, which is typically deadly retribution for some kind of wrong. Yet, this story isn't quite that. It's hard to imagine a young man so full of wickedness that he has accumulated the kind of dark power needed to reanimate himself. Instead, it seems that the power of his love was enough to reanimate him to bring his love back to him. Now, the idea of true lovers being torn apart by greed is a common one, but the addition of digging up a dead body tips it into a much more ghastly supernatural world. In the end, this story isn't so much about two kids being torn apart, but a warning to not place base desires, such as greed, above higher values and ideals, such as love. 
let's be honest, the song isn't gentle about it. And there are a lot of these, what I call teaching songs, where they are teaching moral lessons through story and song. You know, the same thing most literature does, only they are a bit more heavy handed at the end to make sure the audience gets it. But then again, it's important to remember that these songs are being performed so long ago that it wasn't necessarily considered um, hacky. If you think about it, these same techniques still appear from time to time in fourth wall breaks and heavy handed kids films. Those are just two that pop into my head though, but this is something that happens in storytelling and, and, and songwriting. Um, there are, uh, like I said, a lot of these teaching songs in early ballads, especially in terms of how we behave in relationships with each other. The ones we've covered so far have been a bit more subtle, but these kind of warnings are a plenty and we will be covering a plenty more. So I wanted to go ahead and pair this song with a song that remains insanely popular today from around the same time, um, around 1750. Um, that looks at another young man who dies from love, but his is an unrequited love by a cold-hearted Regina George-style mean girl, Barbara Allen. Barbara Allen's Cruelty or The Young Man's Tragedy. In Scarlet Town, where I was bound, there was a fair maid dwelling, whom I had chosen for my own, and her name, it was Barbara Allen. All in the merry month of May, where green leaves they were springing, this young man on his deathbed lay for the sake of Barbara Allen. He sent his man unto her then, to the town where she was dwelling. You must come to my master, dear, if your name is Barbara Allen. For death is printed in his face, and sorrows in him dwelling, and you must come to my master, dear, if thy name is Barbara Allen. If death be printed in his face and sorrows in him dwelling, a little better shall he be for Bonnie, Barbara Allen. So slowly she came to him, and so slowly she came to him. All she said when she came to him, young man, I think you are dying. He turned his face unto her then. If you are Barbara Allen, my dear, said he, come pity me, as I am on my deathbed lying. If you are on your deathbed lying, what is it to Barbara Allen? I cannot keep you from your death. Then farewell, Barbara Allen. He turned his face into the wall and death kept creeping on him. Then adieu, adieu, adieu to you all and adieu to Barbara Allen. As she was walking about one day, she heard the bells are ringing and they did seem to ring to her, unworthy Barbara Allen. She turned herself round about and saw the corpse a-coming. Lay down, lay down, the corpse, said she, that I may look upon him. And all the while she looked on, she loudly, she lay laughing. While on her friends cried out amain, unworthy Barbara Allen. When he was dead and laid in his grave, then death came creeping to she. O oh, mother, mother, make my bed, for his death will quite undo me. Hard-hearted creature that I was to slight one that loved me so dearly. I wish I had been more kind to him in time of life when he was near me. So this maid, she then did die and desired to be buried by him and repented herself before she died, that ere she did deny him. And she was lying down to die, a sad feud she fell in. She said, I pray take warning by hard-hearted Barbara Allen. Oh, Barbie, she's such a bitch. And the song all calls her, but calls her that. And let's be honest, she probably did too. 
after all, there aren't many words to describe a girl so cold that when someone dies from unrequited love, she laughs at his funeral procession. We don't get any information about what puts her on her own deathbed, just that death came for her in a kind of divine karma. I think that both these songs really carry the same message, one that isn't actually stated and that is that is the dangers of the romantic myth of the one. The idea that we only have one true love in our lives is such a toxic one and one that tends to affect us way more than we like to admit. It's one that causes us to wallow in feelings of rejection and insecurity anytime something doesn't work out. To quote Feist, the saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. Each time we pour ourselves into a relationship with anyone, we are giving so much of our energy into the hope and joy we find in the beginning. When it ends, we go through a strange form of grieving. I know this because I had a long-term relationship end not too long after losing two close family members suddenly and violently within two weeks of each other. The physical and mental processes I went through were so similar looking back. I poured myself into work because silence brought the pain of loss and quiet solitude was often too much if I wasn't pouring every ounce of myself into distraction. I've healed from that now, mostly. Still a bit of darkness I address from time to time. I think we've probably all been there though, even as a teenager. So let's look at that Feist song, which is unsurprisingly called Let It Die. Let it die and get out of my head. We don't see eye to eye or hear ear to ear. Don't you wish we could forget that kiss and see this for what it is, that we're not in love? The saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. It was hard to tell just how I felt to not recognize myself. I started to fade away. And after all, it won't take long to fall in love. Now I know what I don't want. I learned that with you. The saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. The tragedy starts from the very first spark, losing your mind for the sake of your heart. The saddest part of a broken heart isn't the ending so much as the start. So here, the lovers don't die. The relationship does. It's that moment where something is, well, nothing is working. We have to reject something we once wanted so badly. And our ego really hates to be wrong. There is a great affirmation of rejection is protection. Sorry, rejection is protection. And it's a great and grand idea of how things and people may leave us or reject us in a way to protect us from things that aren't meant for us. But I take it a bit more complicated view on this. Rejection hurts like a motherfucker, no matter how many times it happens. If you say it never makes you feel bad, you are lying to yourself. That's not just relationships. That includes jobs. Now my brain's losing any other list that I was going to magically create. Anyways, at our core, we are social beings and social acceptance and love in particular are powerful suppliers of that oxytocin. That shit hurts, but you don't have growing pleasure. You have growing pains. Growth hurts. And many times that growth is a result of rejection. We begin to look deeply inwards looking for flaws, but we find 
our shadows. And if we face those shadows, address them, integrate them, then we make progress in our paths of individuation and self-actualization. So to be a little bit personal, uh, my two biggest moments of growth came from rejection. One being the failure of a said long-term relationship and the other rejection from a fully funded PhD program that I was so certain uh, of because I'd been exchanging plans and emails with the project lead who'd agreed to be my supervisor. I feel like only academics are gonna get that, but it, it was very promising. Anyways, both of these forced me into looking at who I was. The first forced me to look at the ways I'd been ignoring my own intuition and self-worth as a result of childhood trauma involving communication and madness. See, my grandmother has borderline personality disorder. That's what Amber Heard has. Have I talked about this? I don't know. Anyway, my grandfather is a complete narcissist and they were my primary caregivers. There's a reason that I've seen four sudden family deaths in the past 20 years. Two murders, a suicide, and an overdose. An aunt, her youngest child, my sister, and a cousin. A second cousin. That's not a story for here, though. It will eventually be one, but it's one that is going to take a lot more work to tell and require its own podcast because that shit is messed up. Anyways, it was that, that forced look into my own shadows that helped me grow into the knowledge that the fact that I am not pregnant and on meth in a trailer somewhere makes me a rather rare gem. I learned a shit ton in the process, but as a result, I don't fit into categories and my wide ranging variety of experience and nerdery has made my perspective on things a highly unique one. Things I'd never have realized about myself if I'd never stared down my own feelings of unworthiness and self-doubt that were the result of that same background. With as much as the ending of that relationship hurt, I can't imagine if it had happened when I was younger and still held on to the myth of the one true love. If, you know, 17-year-olds really believed that and it ends, they go a little... They don't handle it well. I say this as a previous high school teacher. Anyways, uh, so where was I? Ah, true love. Yes. Anyway, some people find it. But what isn't often mentioned is how much work goes into making those relationships actually work. To work, you have to have work. Equal energy and attention has to be placed by both partners in a constant back and forth of open honest communication, cooperation, and compromise. Work isn't romantic, but when you are able to get that kind of relationship, the amount of personal growth that it enables is the true beauty. Two souls working together to grow together. Now, the PhD rejection made me really evaluate what I wanted in my life. The topic of my research, which I'm still doing, is the basis of this podcast. Jungian archetypes and traditional early modern ballads. I'm still just as passionate, but it made me think about what the core essence of my goal was. And it was to make people more aware of the value in these old songs that linger in the shadows of archives and databases. 
if I'd gotten that position, I'd have moved to another country and wouldn't have started this podcast, which I believe holds much more potential in reaching my goal of letting these songs serve as inspiration for others. Instead, it would have been a long academic paper that almost nobody would have read and would have been hidden behind paywalls and then a career dependent on various kinds of funding and pushes for publishing and blah, 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 blah. I think I'd rather just keep talking to y'all about them here so that we are having a more active conversation about the topic. That's what academics claim to be doing anyway, creating conversation on the bigger topics in life from philosophy to engineering. It's all about dialogue and the exchange of ideas. I know all that seems long-winded, but it goes to prove my point that we can't let the pains of lost love or dreams cause us to die physically or mentally. We can't allow these moments to turn us cynical and cold, which, again, isn't easy. But if we do the work, we can actually come away stronger in our understanding of ourselves and what we will and will not tolerate from others. So think about how past heartbreaks have left you stronger and go ahead and let yourself feel pride in that. So as a heads up, I'm going to be taking a break next week to allow myself to jump ahead on planning for the next few shows. Um, I, this, this episode is late in and of itself because sinus infections can go to the devil. Um, so I think it's going to be important for me to go ahead and like have the next week's episode, you know, locked and ready so that if, my inevitable next sinus infection comes. I don't have a late episode. But when we do come back, I'll be looking at an early version of John Tucker Must Die, which I'm realizing is probably a very dated reference. Uh, but it's a song where a bunch of baby mamas come for vengeance. And can bet you can figure out how this happens and where this is going. Now I just got to figure out what I want to go pair it with. All right. So until next time, y'all stay saucy. And have a good night. Bye-bye.